Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, I'm a journalist and podcaster, very tired, ugly American traveling in Cuba. Uh, I'm recording this from a um, uh, like a private room rental in this big condo tower where I'm staying with friends for like $35 a night with like a view of the Malacone, which is this famous like seawall road uh, where all the Cubans hang out, as do many tourists. There's a building that says Patria o Muerte, fa- uh, Fatherland or Death. Uh, Cuba's been a very, very interesting place. I'm so, I've had so much sun. It's so hot. It's a, uh, a beautiful and a weird place to travel. I've been trying to sort of collect my thoughts and say something that um, hasn't been said before because there's so much history here. Uh, I think I'll probably just take your guys' calls on whatever you want. And, and to get to the extent that I can say specific stuff about Cuba, I'll probably wait for like the more <laughs> excuse me, in-depth stuff till I get back. Um, uh, I will say, like, just having not been um, out of the country since COVID, it's just, I don't know. I, I really feel grateful that I get to just like sometimes do this and plop down in a place I'm familiar where I'm a weirdo and don't know how anything works and try to figure it out or try to understand it a little bit. It's, it's a nice thing to be able to do. Um, but let's just turn to American bullshit for one minute because I, it was funny. I was like traveling around and, and for, you guys should definitely jump in the queue because I don't have a huge amount to say. So I'll take whatever questions or comments you have, but I, I've had very limited internet and it was funny to come back, get a little bit of internet, hop on Twitter just to check it and see that we were having that exact same fight about the free speech stuff again. Uh, with the Times op-ed or editorial, and I was glad they wrote it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think it was flawless, but it's just again and again you see this exact same pattern where someone expresses pro, pro free speech sentiments and they do so in a flawed way because any column is going to have some flaws and people freak out as though they were expressing Hitlerian impulses or beliefs. So I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are sort of pretending to not know that there's a problem here. I was struck by... Dave Roberts at Vox repeating the line that this is really just white guys mad that they can't be racist anymore and lashing out. Um, one of his colleagues, Matt Iglesias, left Vox in part because one of uh, Iglesias' colleagues wrote a letter to his bosses because he signed the Harper's letter. She said that made him feel unsafe. So not to reiterate all this stuff for the millionth time, but that is a genuinely new and, and alarming development in journalism. The idea that I can tell my bosses I've been made to feel unsafe because my colleague is in favor of bog standard liberal free speech norms. That's really, really weird. And I think it's disingenuous for folks like Dave Roberts to not acknowledge it's weird and not, you know, what does he think about that? Does he agree that Matt Iglesias made her job unsafe? I I just, again, it's it's like, it's almost not worth fighting about. I tweeted about it and then I just deleted my tweets because what's the point at this point? Colin, what's up? Thank you for helping me do the uh, tech test. Test. Tech chess. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, just real quick on the New York Times thing. Uh, it, it's troubling, but at the same time, I kind of love it because a lot of people um, tip their hand or show their ass, as it were, uh, when people start defending free speech and, and a lot of people kind of show their true colors, come out of the woodwork against it. But um my my question was kind of about Cuba um in the very limited sense that i have of of um cuban americans 
I I get the sense that a lot of them are sort of um, sort of lean right and are very almost nationalist uh, pro America types. I'm wondering if you had any any sense from the the um, the Cuban Cuban population as to to why that would be. Yeah. Um, well, just on, on the first point about the free speech stuff, I mean, my view, my theory is that a lot of these folks really want to purge their spaces of like people who have politics like, you know, mine or Katie's or Matt Iglesias. I think that's really what it comes down to is they think they want to claim the right to say your speech is making me unsafe. I don't want to work with you. I don't want to platform you. And you, you see that in who they go after and the types of pieces they try to deplatform. I mean, you had Adam Davidson, a very smart finance writer, saying that <laughs> if he worked at the Times, he would have resigned or considered resigning, which is so ridiculous and so disproportionate. So I, I just think they really want to control what gets said. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with power and control and, and throwing around whatever power they have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. And they often do so under the guise of we are we are powerless, but there are often people who, like me, went to good schools and had a lot of opportunity and, and have jobs other people want. But um, the Cuba thing is, is complicated. I, I'm not like – I don't think anyone cares what I say. I, I want to be like sort of more comprehensive and, and full-throated when I get back to the States just out of an abundance of caution. I will say that like those views you see from uh, my the exile community in Miami – uh, I have encountered them a lot, uh, mostly because we take a lot of taxis. Um, and mm-hmm. you, I'm I'm doing the Thomas Friedman thing of just to the. I, I thought that they, as I told my friends I'm traveling with, I thought that because it is not a place where you have free speech rights, they would they would be cautious about sort of saying how they feel and speaking honestly. I found the exact opposite to be the case. Cubans, I mean, which maybe shouldn't be surprising because like Cuban Ameri- Cubans are extroverted. Like speaking in terms of ter- uh, stereotypes, that doesn't mean they all are, but they they do like to express themselves. And I, I guess what I would just say is those views you associated with um, Miami Cuban Americans, I think they're pretty widely held here as well. And I try to whenever I ask someone's opinion, I try to also ask them like, what percentage of Cubans do you think agree with you? And um, they don't think they're outliers. One one. A taxi driver last night said he thinks a hundred, basically a hundred percent of the youth believe agree with him that, and he expressed, you know, basically the sentiments you just described about uh, feelings toward the government here. Uh, he said some of the older people are sort of holdovers of of the more revolutionary period, but um, I, I've been surprised how forthcoming they've been uh, about certain things. Basically, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, Scott, that's interesting to me. It's not really what I expected because I figured the the people who were um, very anti-Cuban government would be the ones that are more likely to be in America. Maybe not the ones that are still in Cuba, <laughs> you know. I think um, um, things have been – things have gotten worse and there were protests in July where people were given very long jail sentences and that – there were times in history when it was easy for Cubans to get to the States. And I think it's a little bit harder now. Like there's, I'm looking out at Havana Harbor. (laughs) There's no boats. It's just like beautiful blue Caribbean port. And there's no boats there. And one, I think people have different theories about why that is. But one theory is that all the boats on the North side of the Island have already gone to the States and they're just 
aren't a lot of boats. And I talked to a couple people who said that these days it's actually more common for some reason to try to get to like Mexico and take it cross across the land border, uh, which I, I want to learn more about that. But apparently the the boat thing is slightly out right now, according to the small handful of people I've talked to. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping to learn more. It's too bad I speak Spanish like a slow uh, five-year-old, but I, I can, well, some of them speak English. I'm able to get the basics. So it's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to, to hearing more about it. Thanks, Colin. Uh, and what is up? Hey, Jesse. Hey, are you going to uh, go the full Hemingway experience and visit the Finca and all of his cats and everything? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I think we're not going to get to all the Hemingway attractions. I was just reading this book called, um, let me find it. It's so good. It's this really short history just of Havana called, um, Havana, uh, sub, yeah, Havana, a subtropical delirium by Mark Kurlansky. And it talks a little bit about the Hemingway tourism industry here and how he's, his trademark thing was a daiquiri without sugar. And Cubans think it's crazy to drink anything without sugar because they love sugar in their drinks. But, um, yeah, obviously they, they are big fans here. That's all right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Hemingway's favorite drink, I think, was whatever was handy. And yeah, exactly. would do the job in the shortest amount of time possible. But anyway, so yeah, the, the New York Times thing, I wanted to, I, I've been trying to think about it. Um, I mean, obviously I was heartened to see the Times put that out. I mean, I think that that was a, a real shot in the so-called culture wars and a heartening one. Um, but I'm trying to figure out, as with the Harper's letter, like why it just provokes this this relatively what another era would have been considered an anodyne's uh, support of free speech um, provokes such a vociferous reaction. It's almost like an allergic reaction where this small thing generates this, you know, completely over the top response. And you guys, you, you know, you and Colin were just talking about the power dynamic. And I think that may be part of it. And I haven't thought too much of it, but it's, isn't part of it maybe, the fact that, you know, these people see themselves on the side of the angels, right? And all these various culture war dimensions, um, racial justice, trans issue, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're on the side of the angels that you couldn't possibly lead to your preferred cultural outcomes could not possibly lead to something as nasty as cancel culture. Right. And so you get these weird, it, I hate I hate the word gaslighting, but it is almost like gaslighting where you just this this vociferous denial that the problem even exists. And it's like, did you people like not know nothing about like the, the Holy Land bakery experience in, in Minneapolis, yeah, yeah. which is like to me, one of the, the most egregious. I mean, Barry Weiss's interview with the owner was just heartbreaking, you know, so just in case guy, anyone doesn't know, this was a um, a bakery run by a, a whole sort of food mini empire of like catering and big uh, Middle Eastern bakeries and eateries in um, Minneapolis area where it was found out that the daughter had way in the past when she was pretty fucked up posted some racist stuff and they just people proceeded to destroy the business and to me the cherry on like the the Sunday there was um, Code Switch the NPR show then did a show like sort of adopting the stance that the dad 
had some debt to pay because his daughter had done bad social media posts years prior. It was, it was Katie and I dedicated a whole episode to just, or maybe a long segment to tearing that apart. But that's a really good example of just this sort of like no holds barred revolutionary approach to justice, you know, delivered via destroying people's reputations and businesses. Yeah. And I mean, at the times itself with, um, um, you know, a middle-aged brain. I'm slipping on the um, McNeil and Bennett, right? Those Donald guys. McNeil and uh, Jim Bennett, and to a lesser extent, a- um, Andy Mills, the podcast guy. Yeah, they've been a lot of people who've ha- quit or been fired under. I think they're all technically resignations, but forced ones under. To me, unjustified circumstances. Right, and so it's like this guy Davidson, who I don't really know, but I saw some of his tweets, and it's just like my jaws hanging open, where it's just like this full-throated denial of this thing that everybody with with any sense of objectivity can see is a real phenomenon. It's like, it doesn't exist. You guys are just making shit up. It's just like, you know, racist old white men wanting to say racist old white men things. And it's like, oh my. Well, so I think I'm that's what, trying, I think that's what gets understand. me the most is like, I think it's liberal. The, I think the group that least believes in cancel, like that this is a problem is actually liberal white people. I, I like if you're highly educated and have all the tools you need to know to how to speak the right language and not get in trouble, you're in a better position to do what Adam Davidson's doing and claim this isn't an issue. But I, I hate the sort of racial ventriloquism. Like you're, you're saying that it's, it's really just white people who, who think this isn't an issue. That's just, I don't think that's reflected in any of the polling. To be- yeah. And what happens, you know, there's a new short movie out on YouTube about Roland Fryer and what happened to him at Harvard. And it seems pretty clear. Um, and I'm open to being educated otherwise, certainly. But from what I've read and seen, it was basically this entirely pretextual punishment for, you know, they didn't like his politics. They didn't like his research and what he was finding. And so they found a, a they found a pretext to, to punish him for it. And so I got to look, I got to look more into that, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm open to the, the possibility. Roland Fryer was a, um, uh, Harvard economist, famous black economist, like just a, a gifted individual who uh, was accused of uh, basically sexual harassment, right? Yeah, it was like his former assistant. Um, she got, I, I think she got let go for, for performance related reasons. I don't, anybody should look this up themselves and not take my word for it. This is third hand stuff. And I'm, I'm probably butchering some of the facts, but he, you know, in his office and in his lab, you know, he sort of had a close collegial relationship with his with the people who worked with him and he wasn't you know he was you know maybe overly familiar but it, uh, from what i understand the findings were never that he actually like hit on this woman or or did anything you know inappropriate is directed at her it was just like this sort of like kind of talk about their personal lives you know and then after she was let go it became this this retroactive you know vindictive thing so again i you know Everyone should look into that for themselves. But it's just I'm trying to figure out like why, how these otherwise smart people can see this thing that's obviously happening and say that it's not happening in the same way that, you know, the Leah Thomas thing, like we're all supposed to pretend that a a swimmer, I don't want a dead name or I don't, I respect Leah's existence as a trans woman. That's totally fine. But when she was swimming with the men, she was ranked somewhere like 500 and somethings, right? And then she switches over to swim with the, the women and all of a sudden she's the she's number one. And it's like we're being asked to deny something that is so obviously true that, you know, it I, anyway, I'm, I'm lapsing in incoherence at that. And there's not really much of a question in there for you. But as always, I appreciate the time, Jesse.
Of course. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's um, an unfortunate situation, but I think it's sort of a rubber hits the road moment, and it's just not sustainable to have to have that happen. And I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see how um, sports organizations can, can continue with that kind of policy. It just doesn't seem to be working. I do think there's some uncertainty about exactly what the answer is and what the science is in terms of to what extent the advantage is mitigated. But um, I, I did an appearance on something called Rising with Ryan Grimm and um, Ravi Suave last week, and I was with Sid Ziegler, who's an LGBT sports guy, who I, when I looked into him, I, I recognized the name. He'd said some really crazy stuff like about there basically not being an advantage, but he was very reasonable. So I think people are realizing that the common activist stance of like, there's no differences or, or the differences aren't meaningful or for the fairness's sake, we need to ignore them. I don't think those storylines work on the average American. I think the polling is terrible on this. So I, I think it's like, it, I think it will fix itself, but we'll see. Jacob, what's up? Hey, Jesse. How's it going? You enjoying your time down in the... Yeah. Hey, could you repeat that again? You just cut out for a minute. Oh. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, I just said, are you enjoying your time down in the communist dictatorship? (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm... Viva la Revolucion, etc. And I'll have uh, I'll have more thoughts on all that when I'm back in the states. But I, I'm very grateful I got to see this place uh, for a set. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious to know what would you say are like your two two or three biggest misconceptions about Cuba that were corrected once you got there, and what are like two or three things that I guess you learned down there that you might not have expected to learn? Um, I think. That's a good question. So one is just like, I think there's like a difference between, okay, Cuba, if you look at rankings of like poorest countries is not particularly poor, but there's this like other thing of just like, I guess, supply chains or the way goods are distributed. So there are much poorer countries in here where you can buy eggs when you need them and you can buy milk when you need them, even if you're pretty poor. And there's, the thing of just not being able to go to a market to buy stuff consistently, even if you've got other stuff going for you, even if you've got like a good healthcare system or whatever for your size. And I know there's some controversy over that. It it changes everything from the point of view of just like day to day life and be able to plan ahead and be able to provide for your family. And on that, in that sense, I've never been to a place like that. And I have been to significantly poor countries. So I, I didn't quite understand the extent of that or how that, affect people's day-to-day life. That was one thing. And then just, I think, um, I thought that in my conversations, I would find, and this is very small sample size, and also it will never be the case that I talk to a representative sample of Cubans because I'm not like... Obviously, yeah. Pulling poor villages in the Eastern Mountains, but I think I thought maybe Cubans would be more politically divided, and I'm not... People seem to all think the same thing about... Uh, their government, based on the ones I've talked to so far. But that could change, maybe by the end of the trip. I still have um, five or six days here. Maybe I'll, I'll meet some others. But so far, it's people are not shy about expressing. 
Interesting. And I'm also curious to know like how you feel, because obviously you touched on this a little bit about the level of freedom down there, but like, do you feel like you really are constrained or that like you might really be afraid to speak your mind down there if you're talking to a stranger in a cafe or does the society really feel much more free? No, I think I, I think as an, um, mm, Cubans don't seem to be afraid to talk to a random tourist they're just meeting about whatever they want. I think if it came to publishing stuff critical of the government in a newspaper or protesting, that's a whole other thing. And that, that I'm not saying anything that isn't widely known here. Uh, that's right. genuinely dangerous. Me personally, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm just trying to just be like a little bit careful. Um, yeah. Cause why not? And I can always just say whatever I want when I'm back in the States, but I, um, I'm very grateful to be from a place where, that is by no means perfect and that I think has um, a lot of missed potential, but where I can say whatever I want about my government. Yeah, because like I've been to the United Arab Emirates twice, which is obviously not exactly a free country. And I found that even in like private conversations, people there seem to be very cagey about what they would what they were willing to say about their thoughts on the government and the royal families there, which I, I expected found... a little bit more of that here. I think there's maybe I, I'm really just Basing this on on people's right. reaction to me, which has been to be forthcoming, I don't get the sense that there's like the same level of formal or informal surveillance. Um, I think that could be it. Whereas I think maybe in some of like the Gulf states, they put more energy into really monitoring what people are saying. But I could be wrong, and it could be that if you're like maybe if you work in a government position here, it's different. You need to be more careful. The the people right. I've talked to, mostly drivers, frankly, have have not been careful. They've been very forthcoming. Yeah, because I was in Zimbabwe, which is not exactly the same as the UAE, but I think most people would agree is probably also not a free country. And when I was in Zimbabwe, I found that the local townsfolks were very free to talk about their thoughts on the government and the political parties, etc. And nobody really seemed to have any concern about saying very negative things about that. And I just found it to be interesting to contrast the way people, at least who I was interacting with, my very subjective, you know, interactions with locals, just be really different in those two nations. And Cuba is a place I'd love to make it to, but haven't had the chance to go yet. But I just do find it interesting how West, how safe Westerners actually do seem to feel there. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm I'm being foolish. I mean, I, I think I'm just not saying anything that isn't uh, well known in the states, but um. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's um, definitely, definitely different gradations of, um, of unfreedom, I guess. Uh, but yeah, people, people seem. Again, I, I think it's like a decent proxy what people will say to a random tourist who they know nothing about, and that based on that, people feel pretty open to talk, say things as long as it's not um, formal protest or anything. Yeah, and I'm also curious to know what you found in terms of attitudes towards the U.S. and Americans, because obviously multiple U.S. presidents over decades have waged a you know pretty ferocious embargo, etc., against Cuba. So, yeah. how have you found like people's attitudes towards like the U.S. in general and Americans in in the um, in the countryside? There's like a huge amount of billboards. It's Fidel Che pro revolution. They call it the El Bloqueo, the blockade, even though it's not technically a blockade. By that, they mean the, you know, the embargo. And yeah, we've, our policy toward here, I think, has been inexcusably bad and, and caused a lot of harm with no benefit. Uh, they're not anti-American. Uh, they want to 
they want to go to there. <laughs> that's that's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah, that's like really it. Yeah, I actually found when I was in former the former British colonial regions of Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, that there was actually a really high degree of very high regard for the British monarchy, which I was personally very surprised by. I think oh, it's probably like my isn't is some of it just migration patterns. Like a lot of people, if you're in a um, well, this isn't different because we never right. sort of formally colonized them, even though we controlled it for a long time. But I think there's so many ties between Cuban Americans and Cuban Cubans that they they just pr- are probably are very aware of of certain differences, right? Yeah. And are you going to try and get into Guantanamo Bay while you're down there? I, I, I'm not. Unless I'm sent there forcibly by the U.S. government, I will not be making an appearance there. Oh, that is honestly a place that I find to be fascinating. You know, this little, uh, you know, American oasis prison type thing on an island that we sort of technically consider an enemy state. It's the whole and it's the not whole history of like Cuban. I don't. I still don't know enough about it. It's just such a bizarre messed up history, including Guantanamo, yeah. Yeah, and it's obviously also not a place that is really open to, uh, for sure, average Americans, but even American journalists can't exactly just, like, call DOD or whoever it is that manages I'm just going to drive up to the gate. I assume there's a buzzer. I'll say, hey, can I, can I poke around a little bit? Well, if you flash your American passport and remind them that your tax dollars are funding it, then they might have a different attitude. <laughs> yes. My tax dollars are paying for the psychological torture you're inflicting on the. Anyway, thank, thank you, Jacob. Yeah, enjoy the rest. <laughs> thank you, Durin. I didn't mean to cut you off, Jacob. I will. I will enjoy the rest of the trip. Hopefully, Durin. Durin. I can't read the rest of your name. You're gonna want to unmute yourself. Yeah, it was Durin Pride Moth. Uh, I was oh, nice. To... I like it. Yeah, it's too. It was too long, so I'll have to change that. Um, yeah, um, hoping your time in Cuba is going well. I heard there's a, like a huge ice cream coliseum or something like Castro loved ice cream. I yeah, visiting that. I don't know if we're gonna go. I don't. It's it's hard to keep track of what's uh, still open. But I was just reading about this last night. Fidel Castro was obsessed with ice cream and created this place with 27 flavors of ice cream and there'd be a one or two or three hour line to get into it. The Cubans would go there. The Americans would go there. Uh, I should try to see if it's, I don't even know if it still exists to be frank. Um, but yeah, it, it's just such an awesome random fact about Fidel Castro is that he was a huge ice cream guy. The other great Castro fact is everyone knows about the, I think most people know the CIA at least considered killing him with an exploding cigar the other thing they tried to do was dose him with something that would cause all of his hair to fall out because they thought his charisma stemmed from his hair. And that if, if his head hair and beard and mustache fell off, the revolution would fail. But they never, they never pulled that plan off uh, successfully. But there's like with, – with Cuban-American history, there's so many moments – and Cuban history, which is like no one could make this shit up. Like if someone was like, there's this guy and explained who Fidel Castro was and what he did. By the way, he loved ice cream and he spent millions of dollars building an incredible ice cream place. No one would believe that. It, yeah, I remember just seeing so many stories because it was just – it's – I mean, there's controversy around Castro. I think that's safe to say. And but people, but the fact that he loved ice cream and had these interesting ideas, I'll just say that around like trying to breed a cow that would tolerate the, the weather of Cuba and like a whole Stein equivalent. So, anyways, it was it was interesting. So I just yeah. thought wasn't sure if you were going to be using that. Regarding the 
that article, yeah, I mean, I saw some, David French's anal analysis of it was pretty good, trying to juggle between uh, being uncomfortable and, like, talk while condemning the laws, like, by GOP against trying to ban books and all that stuff. The Trying to also bring up the elephant in the room, the cert, how certain progressive factions are a little more aggressive when it comes to... Uh, Highlighting disproportionate punishment for uh, other people, uh, people who may walk outside of what is uncomfortable within progressive spaces. The David Shore article, for example, not article Twitter. Twitter. Uh, I I saw I, I've actually brought this up on a tw on a, online, and I was surprised that most people just kind of transitioned that over to that should be uh, discussed more about job security. It was interesting. They, they're talking about. You mean when you bring up David Shore, they're like, "This is a job security issue." No, well, more like that. This is more about at will employment rather than a free speech issue. Another person, when I brought up uh, what was it, the McNeil case, uh, a same issue, just like uh, more job security, more unions, or something like that. It was it was an interesting argument. Also, they brought up the you should even context shouldn't matter. It's one of those consequences things, which right. I don't know. It just sounded like the more HR equivalent of without going to. I know this is an extreme example. That's like sort of what. No, but that's sort of what at will employment is: is we can fire you for any reason, regardless of your intent. It just seems silly. I mean, it just seems silly to me that that yeah that, that is an issue, but it does kind of seem like a bit of a deflection. Uh, to well, I, I mean, I, I'd say they're sort of exactly missing their own point because we have yeah we have at will employment. It's very very easy to fire people in most circumstances for any reason which is all the more reason that we should make the norms be to not do that. The norm should not be that if people, like in the David Shore case, some asshole got mad at him on Twitter and that was that, he got fired. That's ridiculous. It's legal, but it's ridiculous. So, yeah, I think a lot of the times, like, these guys just think they're arguing with far-right conservatives, so they think that's like a Trump card. It's like, no, you're, you're right. At-will employment's bad in many ways, so we should not fire people. It's all the more reason to fight whatever this, this illiberal force is. Right. So, yeah, I just find that Yeah, I just kind of found – I mean, they accused me of uh, – I, I, the other one accused, said something the assortment of essentially arguing that this is a new phenomenon. I don't think I was arguing that. It just seemed weird that that was brought up. Uh, I, again, I, I know that there are absolutely people who want to say, like, the N-word just – for being either edgy or something. And well, but I'm there, sure are, that's there, aren't, there aren't that many. I mean, this is sort of like, I think Kat Rosenfield got accused of this, but this idea that there's huge numbers of people who are bad, they can't scream racial slurs or can't say black people aren't human, that that's what's driving this is just ridiculous. Show me examples where that's what's at issue. It did seem kind of weird. I was just thinking when I saw the, the whole McNeil case, I was just thinking reading teachers reading a, reading a Mark Twain novel, for example. That was just something that came to mind. Or, I mean, another example that obviously it's not much of a – it's a different type of cultural consequence. Uh, like people talking about like certain cartoons of religious icons. I'm not going to say it out loud. I know that's an apples and oranges case. But talking about consequences for things that even if you find it distasteful, it seems over the – disproportionate. Yeah. I think that's what I'm trying. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I think they often don't want to engage with specific cases, um, and that's why they – I don't even under yeah. I anyway. I, I agree with you. These are silly arguments, and that if anything, they support the case of those of us who are worried about a liberalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that the same things that can be weaponized by li uh, liberals can absolutely weaponized by conservatives. The what was it? The James Gunn jokes about 
you yeah, know it was so, this ridiculous bad faith um, campaign it, it against James Gunn that really got him in trouble. It was clever. It was clever by that. I think it was I can't remember the, the alt right guy who did it. It was cynical, but it was clever because it kind of forced others the these progressives to kind of live by their own standards. It was weird. Yeah, I don't know. I, that being, I, I support James Gunn. I'm glad he's coming back. It, but he shouldn't have been fired in the first place. Absolutely not. Off colored. Yeah. Anyways, I'll let you on to the next guy. I was trying to make the name a little shorter, uh, uh, easier with the pun, but I'll make it shorter next time. Thank you. Get rid of the extra R. If it was just D-U-R-I-N-P-R-I-D, yeah. I would have seen it. All right, I'm really disappointed in you during Pride. All right. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. All right. Kyle, what's up? Guys, this might have to be my, sorry. Yeah, I can hear you guys. This might have to be my last call. I after talking a lot, I'm like, I've got something going on uh, throat wise, and I keep having to mute to, to cough. So I might have to cut out after this. We'll see how how I'm feeling. Kyle, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, touch on. I'm, I'm hoping uh, while you're in Cuba, you haven't had a chance to enjoy the science versus uh, misinformation trans episode. But oh um, god, maybe what you emailed I'd be interested that to, hear what you to have me. To say about it. I think I'm going to have to do something like that. Everyone emailed it to me. I, I, as soon as I saw the names of who they interviewed, this is very frustrating because the last time Science Versus did an episode on this subject, they caught a couple things wrong, and I did like two posts explaining how they got it wrong and explaining why these mistakes matter. They only corrected one of them. They didn't credit me, which they should have, but um, watching outlets like Science Versus just completely mortgage any credibility they had on an issue that's really fucking important. Like, we're talking about adolescence and suicide. You can't... Anyway, I take it you thought that it was uh, not good. I, I You know, I, I didn't think they did a very good faith uh, interpretation. I, I think they kind of were arguing against kind of maximalist uh, anti-trans positions and, and not really having much... I hate to use the word nuance, but not much nuance there. And uh, particularly, you know, at one point they were um, trying to debunk the idea of the social contagion. And so they brought up a study about how trans kids um, face all sorts of issues and it's not really that, that great of a outcome for them. And I think the, the real way that you would debunk that uh, social contagion would be to, to interview non-trans kids about their perceptions of what trans life is like. Yeah. Um, well, and also it's, like there's like a difference between being, being a trans person out in the world in a conservative town versus like everyone, everyone knows that there's groups of kids who, for whom these identities are like a plus, a badge they can hold. Like everyone knows there's, there shouldn't be any controversy at this point that there's this sort of um, this thing where like people try to hold up their marginalized identities as a point of pride. This is happening in progressive spaces left and right. It's, it just, it's, it's again, not to use that other caller's invocation of gaslighting, but it's almost gaslighting because all you have to do is go online and you'll see that kids, kids love to flash their, not only their gender identity, but their mental health conditions, whether they're mixed race. Like, these identity is very in right now, and it's weird to me that anyone could deny that. Yeah, and I, I don't want to try to get you to get too far into it if you haven't had a chance to, to you know, read it or listen to it. I, one quick question on free speech, the, the article. I was wondering what your take is on kind of the distinction between being deplatformed or being canceled and being demonetized. Um, I kind of go back and forth on this. I'm, I'm more than willing. I'm more willing to see people be demonetized. I, you know, I don't know that we need to facilitate um, Alex Jones becoming a millionaire spewing garbage. But when you look at like the trucker protest or the ability for financial institutions to kind of collude to shut down credit cards and all sorts of stuff like that, I, I get more worried. So it's it's hard for me to 
decide where that should that line of demonetization around free speech should should come down. Yeah, I haven't thought a lot about it. I mean, I will say to me, I've, I'm obviously against all those things in general. I think uh, deplatforming someone from one campus speaking event uh, is bad. That's obviously not as bad as demonetizing a YouTuber who's making a living on YouTube or on Twitch or whatever, which I would only want to do in extreme cases. And then, like, to me, the most truly dystopian one is, like, a private citizen found to hold a view that's unpopular or to go to the trucker rally or whatever who suddenly can't use their credit card. That's, like, that's when you're getting into China territory, and that I find incredibly disturbing. And I, I don't think there's any case where I would be in favor of someone, like, losing access to banking or to credit, even if they're a neo-Nazi, frankly. Like, to me, this is one of those cases where you can be a complete free speech purist. Um, so, Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you, Kyle. All right, well, I'll take these last two calls. Sorry, guys. I just I'm feeling a little under the weather, but let's uh, let's see what you guys have to say. AA, what is up? Hello. Uh, Hello. My question is, I have a theory. I want to run this by you. So it's not oftentimes, quote unquote, sort of like woke ideas. It, it's it's kind of strange. It's hard sometimes to predict what they will be. Like for instance, like with. Um, like gay marriage, for instance, there's a big emphasis on you know, being born this way, sort of like a biological determinism. But other issues, it's the exact opposite. Um, and like often, sort of the woker side, whatever you might call it, 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 there's not a lot of coherence in how you predict things. How do you, can, you think you can predict what position will be the position that's sort of the, uh, the moral one considered to be? And how do you, how would you predict it? I think it's it's like backwards engineered. So you get the outcome you want and then you, you build your beliefs around that. So like because we're not supposed to believe in biological sex anymore, we're supposed to discount it. Suddenly that's a social construct. I don't mean suddenly. I mean it's been theorized as such for a while. But like I think that's the reasoning. So, you know, if you're fighting for gay marriage in a country that was much more homophobic in the 90s and aughts than it is today, um, thankfully there's been a huge reduction I think in homophobia it's just it, you're making that argument for political reasons, and and in that case, it's like mostly scientific. I, I don't think "born this way" quite captures it, but I think it's like, you know, ninety percent of it. I think there's some social impact on it. There's obviously people who experiment, um, but no, I don't think you can predict. I think it, they. I don't think, I don't think ideologues like use. Everyone's an ideologue a little bit. I'm an ideologue, but I, I don't think like hardened ideologues use like science and logic in the same way. I think they, they use it as tools to get to where they already know they want to go, if that makes sense. They're not starting from like a process of um, inquiry where they may, might get to X, they might get to Y. They already know they need to get to the position that you know biological sex barely matters, so they'll adopt whatever findings they need. It's like a buffet where they'll they'll take the findings that help support that position and leave the other stuff in the tray. If that makes sense. I get what you're saying. I disagree. Actually, I think that it's predictable. I have a theory about how to predict it. Um, but yeah, I think you're mostly right. Um, but for instance, like I think a lot of times you're, you're saying that they take whatever's convenient. But a lot of times they pick stuff that's inconvenient. It's like pretty insane and like you know, irrational and impractical, right? So. It doesn't seem to be what's actually useful for their side all the time. A lot of times it seems like... Well, give me an example of something that's... Or like defund the police, all this type of stuff, right? Like um, if you if you actually want to... Or like like the idea that they're pushing for like trans stuff, there's no difference between men and women at all, like biologically. Like it's just completely impractical, illogical. No one's going to believe it. 
because all sorts of these these sort of quote unquote low positions don't really actually make like they're not useful. Sometimes, but sometimes they but I think they're useful. There's this idea, Freddie DeBoer, he stole it from someone else, this idea of the iron law of institutions where if your goal is to gain clout and status within your institution rather than to accomplish its external goals, it might make sense to say things like there's no such thing as a man or a woman um, yeah. biologically because within, yeah. within your in-group that gives you, you – you, you don't really have the option of saying otherwise within your in-group or you'll get in trouble. No, that is that is what I would say. So that that's how I would predict. Like for instance, like why is like a kind of a woke position to say that you know we're a blank slate? That's kind of why is that the woke position for the most maximal woke position? I guess obviously I'm using the word woke. It's not a perfect yeah, word, yeah. but I think it's because it's not really attackable on moral grounds, right? If you want to say that someone is it's a bad idea, it's hard to say you're. It, you're immoral for thinking that there's nothing to do with biology. But if, if you think things are biology, you can say, oh, you're eugenicist, you're, you're a Nazi, um, you're a determinist, you think that there's a class of the people that are better than others. There's a bunch of things you can say morally, but it can't, like, I don't see any way to attack it, even though it makes no logical sense. If you have any idea about like, uh, like genetics, you know that it's like blank slaton is, is crazy, but it can't really be attacked on moral grounds. But I think it's kind of like, it's kind of like there's like a uh, survival of the fittest. There's a bunch of people who are trying to claim a moral high ground against each other, and they kind of fight it out. And eventually, the ones that survive are the ones who are making the positions that can't be attacked on moral grounds at all, regardless of how ridiculous they are. That's interesting. And so yeah. like, I think a good example of uh, this is like, like, like trans stuff. Like it started out, it was like, it's kind of like born this way, right? You know, trans, you know, being trans is a biological thing that you have. And then we said, no, 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 you can't say that because um, some people just, just feel like they're trans, but they don't want to have to go through through medicalization. So it, then it sort of became, um, you know, anyone can be trans, even if you don't transition, even if you don't. And then it sort of became like, okay, even if there's no such thing as gender at all, right? It, it just comes down to, you are exactly what you say you are, and that's the fact of it. It becomes sort of more and more crazy, but it's intended. No matter what, me. the position sort of gets more radical over time. Yeah, and it's just to defend against either like the the, the first one was born this way, but you can attack that from. Your hey, hey, I feel bad. You're, I don't know if it's my connection or yours, but you're you're cutting out a little bit. Um, are oh, you? Sorry. Are you? Can yeah. You hear me? Um, Let's just wrap that up there. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I'm just going to take Shauna's last caller. Uh, we'll see if her connection is better. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. That um, Well, part of what you're saying is that the position sort of – it's like as the group hardens and maybe normal people get ousted from it or don't want to participate. You see this dynamic, especially on Twitter, where the position – the orthodox position gets more and more radical. I, I think that's happened with what you're just talking about with positions like – defund and abolish the police, and it's, it's not useful in terms of achieving external political goals or, or growing a movement. Shauna, you are the final. Yeah, you can go potty. Oh, hello. Sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry, just. I can go potty? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes, Jesse, you can, you can go potty. I was trying to have two conversations at, at once. I'm sorry, that's embarrassing. Um, obviously, I have young kids, hopefully. Um, no most important question, what in the world have you been eating? Oh, 
<laughs> Excuse me. Um, not. It's not a great scene if you're an American vegetarian. Um, there are some limitations here. We've ha- we've found some good places in Havana, but I would not say a highlight here is the food. Uh, but I will be okay because soon I'll be back in the ridiculously bounteous arms of New York City. Uh, but yeah, that's not that is not a a reason to come here. I don't think even even for non vegetarians. I just I think it has that reputation for. A reason, and I think if you want like really good Cuban food, you should probably go to Miami. Actually, interesting. Yeah, I was uh, thinking maybe you're just having pure like queso versions of queso for three meals a day. They don't have that. I would I would love it, but you often can't. You can't. um, The thing that happens is they will be if you order. We've we've gone to a couple of the sort of slightly fancier, but still cheap by our standards, more touristy places. But at the average restaurant here, they will be out of a lot of stuff on the menu, and they will often not have beer, even if it's on the menu. So you just you can't really count on being able to get anything. But like, we've found places where we can get eggs and toast, and that that's fine. That'll keep me going like during the day. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was just curious about that. Um, so I guess more intellectually based question, have you done any research? And this is just something that I've become more interested in personally is um, on school choice. And what I mean by that is uh, a lot of these discussions, especially if you're talking about cancel culture or just even things that you assumed weren't debatable now seem to be up for debate. And I think specifically more in, sciences and even mathematics at this point but um and then sort of pulling the string back from that okay you have intellectuals okay where are they learning some of this material or debating this higher education okay so who's feeding that group into these the upper echelons of universities so you have uh, upper echelon prep schools for high school and that sort of thing and so i wonder because as a parent, I think, why would I want to send my kids to these schools that, yes, apparently they're the highest level of education. And I'm not talking about uh, university. I'm talking about prep schools and, and that sort of thing. Why would I ever want to send my kid there? I know it's under the guise of that they're going to receive the best education. But I also don't want to, no offense, I don't want to create an asshole either. Right. Right. Sometimes... Maybe I don't want the smartest kid in the room because they're just a horrible person to be around. Yeah. I'm not trying to – I know that sounds a little No, rude, it's a common that's... thing where the smartest person is also the most um, – So I was just curious, and I know that you're not a parent, but I, I appreciate your, your like insight and input as someone who has um, gone to more elite schools, like your viewpoint on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about like the school choice debate, frankly. I, I think a lot of this stuff, especially since Michael Brown and then even more so George Floyd, I think there's a faddish aspect of a lot of it, and I think a lot of it is pretty unpopular. And I think at the end of the days, elite schools are going to teach elite skills to future elites, and they're going to make sure they're good at math and science and engineering and whatever else they want to do. So. I don't think we're going to have a situation. I think in some extremes there are schools that like really go off the deep end, but I think overall um a lot of this stuff is like just sort of opportunistic, like 
Lily White prep school showing how down with the cause they are. And I just, I just don't think it's going to change their curricula in the long run, to be honest, but I could totally be wrong about this. Well, I was thinking more specifically, even on the um, story Katie reported on that, I think it was med school at UCLA. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it was in California, but specifically from the medical school there of a instructor having to apologize to the students for, oh, for using know, male and female, I think. Right, right. Yeah. And, and we're, we're talking about future doctors here. So I think it's all fun and games of doing pronouns and talking about feelings and appropriate ways to speak of people. But once you start involving medical science, um, the games are over, I think. And I, I think I, that's a pretty mainstream view. Yeah. So I just, I, just, I don't know. I, I guess I just think like at the end of the day, they're not going to train incompetent doctors because they're um, I mean, that was a ridiculous story and an alarming story. And, and you see some stuff going on in this uh, in med schools. That's ridiculous. But they're, they they cannot be doctors without knowing what males and females are. And um, I, I just think they would if they start producing doctors that are incompetent, it would. These are institutions that want to sustain their own prestige and class and their ability to generate revenue. So I, I don't know. I think markets are going to put a, the brakes on a lot of this stuff, but I agree with you that it's very disturbing. Okay. We'll have a great time. We're enjoying your inputs from Cuba. Thank you, Shana. Have a nice day. Uh, all right, everyone. I'm glad I was able to make this work. I wasn't sure the signal would be strong enough, but I appreciate you guys hopping on on short notice. Uh, as always, I would ask you to spread the word about the show, uh, get other people to uh, hop on call and check this out, check out my other stuff, jessesingle.substack.com. But for now, I am going to uh, take some more Dayquil, which I brought from here, brought to here because I don't think you can buy it here. You can't really buy like a lot of stuff here, like Tylenol, ibuprofen and stuff, but we, we're good. Um, but yeah, go um, hug your local convenience store or bodega because uh, we're lucky that those of us who are American that we can buy all this shit. There's downsides too. There's there's sprawl. There's vast swaths of the country that are just paved over parking lots with McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King. That stuff sucks. We've expressed those opinions, but... Um, there are alternatives to that that are even worse. So we'll talk about this more when I get back. Bye, guys. Hope the uh, rest of your weekend is uh, good. Farewell.